if train jumping was always like those two hour, those three hours of Pasco, right. then everybody would train jump all the time. It was so beautiful and it was so perfect. Mm-hmm. And we were so pleased with ourselves. <laughs> and little did we know. <laughs> it was just gonna go terrible from there. <laughs> it was the downward yeah. spiral. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is a new installment in my ongoing series exploring life-changing travel experiences from my own life. It recounts how I jumped freight trains across the Pacific Northwest many summers ago, an experience that could well be my first truly iconic travel adventure. You might recall back in episode 79, I talked about my very first vagabonding trip, a Volkswagen van journey across North America for eight months when I was 23 years old. My freight train jumping experience happened two years before that, and as you'll find out in this episode, it wasn't as well-planned or as philosophically well-grounded as my later vagabonding trip. It was more impulsive and more visceral and tied to a vague yearning for adventure. It was also a lot more dangerous than an average vagabonding trip. Joining me in this conversation is my old friend Brian Hartenstein, who came along with me for that freight train adventure. I knew Brian from my college track team back in Oregon. We were later roommates in Seattle, and his experience of teaching English in South Korea was a big influence on my later decision to move there and do the same thing when I was in my mid-20s. Brian still works as an English teacher, and he often tells the story of our old train-jumping experience to his international students, often in the context of that yearning for adventure we all feel when we're young. We talk a lot about that yearning in this interview, about the haunting call of the train whistle, and our fascination with the idea of freight hopping when we were young. You know, jumping trains was a whimsical and somewhat romantic notion a few decades after millions of hobos rode freight trains during the Great Depression. But it's also notoriously dangerous, which is something we weren't fully aware of when we did it. In fact, we jumped trains across the Pacific Northwest during an era when a certain serial killer was murdering train jumpers in the same area. This is where Robert Silvera did his deadly work. Hopping freight trains, riding across America, sharing railroad cars with unsuspecting hobos and thrill-seeking youngsters. They call him the Boxcar Killer. That's from a true crime TV show called Mugshots, and while I don't want to exaggerate the dangers we faced when we were jumping trains that summer, I will say that freight hopping has dangers and challenges unique to that method of travel. Brian and I talk about this in our conversation. We also talk about how inexperienced and unprepared we were at the outset of the journey, how we improvised our way through the adventure even as we were getting arrested by the yard bulls in Spokane or dealing with aggressive hobos in the Columbia Gorge town of Wishram. We make some comparisons to Christopher McCandless, who was immortalized by the book and later the movie Into the Wild. When I read that book, McCandless seemed a lot older than me, but in retrospect, it feels like we were more or less the same age, and we jumped freight trains in the same part of America, just one year apart. I traveled America by van a couple years after I rode the rails. In a way, I wrote my book Vagabonding with the version of me that rode the rails in mind, and I think my book would have made sense to Christopher McCandless, perhaps in a way that would have made him less likely to put his own life in danger. The train detail is maybe the closest we came to overlapping in real life. He was a lot more daring than I was, for better or for worse. So here's my longtime friend Brian and I recounting our old train jumping adventure across the Pacific Northwest. We actually met in person earlier this year when we were both traveling through Utah at the same time. It was the last air travel trip I took before the pandemic grounded everyone. 
We start by talking about the romantic mythology that surrounded train jumping back in the day and our own specific inspiration for deciding to do it. Let's listen in. There's a little bit of mythos left over from the old hobo era. Mm -hmm. I mean, that generation was mostly dead, but there was some romance left over. And so I might just start by saying, why do we do it? I mean, what was what, what was, was the, the impetus? What yeah. was the impetus for that trip? Well, I'm, I'm curious. You know, we talked about uh, movies and books that we had read that gave us this idea for jumping trains. And for me, it was my my grandparents. They grew up in the you know the Great Depression. The hobos used to come to their house, and they would give them odd jobs. And there was always a train kind of running through their backyard. So I grew up with that. But then I was thinking about movies and everything from. Um, you know, the Indiana Jones when he's jumping in the train or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids. There's, there's, this is part of a, the American um, mythology. So it's a good thing to talk about. Yeah, and I think it sort of created a travel romance um, that includes the Kerouac stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think Kerouac, we think of him as, you know, maybe more of a car guy than a train guy. <clears throat> but I think he romanticized the hobos. He read a lot of cowboy novels. Mm -hmm. We don't really think of him that way. We see him as this hipster, but he mm -hmm. was sort of a sentimentalist at heart. Mm -hmm. um, and when he was a young man, the hobos were, were, were becoming old, were becoming old men. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he traveled America in the 40s. The hobos really traveled America in the 30s. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how much research you've done about train jumping in America, but it's sort of a post-Civil War thing. Mm -hmm. And... Um, because they were still building railroads back then. And if you didn't have enough money to, to buy a train ticket, then you would jump on right. freight trains and travel west. And of course, the Great Depression, people got poor and that created the, the hobo class. But it's also <clears throat> always been about freedom. Like we'll get, we'll get into Kerouac, you know, and, and Rolf, I like to think of myself as the Neil Cassidy of your life. But uh, uh, train jumping Kerouac, when he needed to get out of town, when he needed to, to split, he would get on a train. And I think that's part of our reason for wanting to, to do this. So we wanted to get out, we wanted to see more, and this seemed like a perfect way to kind of do something very unusual and also have a great adventure. Well, to give some context too, I mean, we, we went to college together mm -hmm. in a little town called Newburgh, Oregon. And I'm really curious, in, just in real time, we can pinpoint exactly how this started. I mean, just so my audience knows, we, we jumped trains across the Pacific Northwest. It was this crazy adventure. <laughs> I promise you guys we'll tell some, some details in a second. But it's just, it's not a very normal thing to do. So I, I want to figure out why exactly we did this. I know you could, in our college town, you could hear the train. Well, let me, let me set the stage a little bit. So okay. Newburgh, Oregon is this little tiny Quaker college town. It's nestled in the plush Willamette Valley. And when you get out of the little main street town, there are rolling hills and Robert Frost type fences and these mysterious orchards. And we were on the track and cross country team. And so we were constantly going outside of this little hamlet and running and getting lost. And at the north end of town, there was a train track. And every single night at 11.15, through the quiet of this campus, you could be sitting in your dorm room or in the library, you would hear the train and you would hear that woot, woot, like this echo across the campus. And Rolf, it was like a siren song. It was like Odysseus strapped to the mast. You know, I had to answer this. And that's what we did. If you remember, we'd go out at night and we'd stand in there in the pitch dark at the, at the edge of this 
town on the train tracks and wait for the train. We were going to race the train. And there in the dark, the light would appear. And we were in good shape back then. We were much, much younger. This is, you know, 30 years ago. But we would get ready. And as the train would come, we'd take off running. And from where we started, there was about 100 meters before an abyss, like the, the, the ground just stopped. And there was a trestle where the train would go over. And we'd race the train to this cliff. And if we could make it, you know, we beat the train. And that's how it started, racing the train in the dark. See, I listen to you and you sound like a, a, a gravelly American storyteller. It sounds so perfect. In my mind, I'm thinking, were we drunk? But no, Ralph, you know, hanging on that trestle when the train would race over and the power of this thing, you know, I think we, we wanted to connect to this. We wanted to find out what this was, but it, it was a call. To adventure. Well, let's contextualize this a little bit too, because I mean, I was a kid from Kansas. This was a very foreign and exotic place for me. Mm -hmm. You were a kid from Oregon. You mm -hmm. were you grew up not that far from our campus, mm -hmm. um, and we were we were on the track team, and so we, mm -hmm. we sort of bonded. You were a sprinter. You were a hurdler. Mm -hmm. I was a, I was a middle distance runner, um, and then we had that practice of chasing trains in the night. The other thing that I was thinking of is that I actually. At a time in college when you had no privacy, one of the first times I had sex <laughs> was in a box was car. In a box car. It yes. wasn't literally the first time. It was probably one of the first five times I ever had sexual intercourse. Basically, I, I was with <clears throat> this lovely young woman, and we'd had a relationship before, but it was sort of this weird, tortured college Christian college thing, and we weren't sure. But we decided that we needed to hook up again. But privacy is hard to come by on a college campus. And so I knew there's that boxcar, there's a, the rail yard north of town and there were well, empty you're, boxcars. You're touching on some serious stuff. You're talking about love and sex. and uh, These are some very serious issues and themes of a young person's life. So, Well, that's the thing is that this is, as travel stories go, this was before my first vagabonding trip. I'd done other types of travel, but this was like an a pretty epic trip before I was really philosophically a traveler. That I was a young man, you were a young man. And so I don't know how connected to this my sex story is, but I remember being with this young woman and wanting to have a place where we could go and hook up and showing up at your dorm and borrowing a blanket. I wasn't I wasn't gonna say this detail, but yes, in fact you did, and we both know this this young lady very, very well. And we're not if she's listening we yeah. love you so much still yeah, we to this day. We, we, we love you. Uh, yeah, you came to my, you came to my door uh, in the middle yeah. of the night and said, I need some blankets. I'm going to have sex. <laughs> I said, take everything I have. <laughs> but, you know, Rolf, the, the, we always had to come back to the, the reason, I think, that we were so romanticizing this was books. And the thing that we always had together is that we would get into Whitman and we would talk about Kerouac. And so it's, it's, it's no surprise that you would go and, you know, bang one out in a boxcar because that's what, uh, <laughs> that's what Whitman would do. That's what Kerouac would do. He, they, they taught us those things. Well, I think it was a mix of pragmatism and romanticism because <clears throat> I, I simply needed an, an indoor place to have sex <laughs> with this lovely young woman. Um, but then also there was something super cool about the fact that it was in a boxcar. Right. And, and I think as we learned, when we jumped trains, 
a year and a half later, we realized that there's not a lot of romance. You know, like the, you, you, you really are romanticizing it because you, you could just be a dirty degenerate. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're right, the, the romance of the boxcar. Isn't there a Saint, Edna St. Vincent Belay poem about hearing the, the, the call of the train whistle and dreaming of someplace else? Mm. I'll put it in the show notes or maybe I'll read it in the introduction or something. But I think that maybe we're the last generation for whom the sound of a train whistle is sort of a travel metaphor. Right. It really ignites a kind of wanderlust. Yes. It's the siren's call. It is, <laughs> it is the same theme we see again and again in stories, the call of the young hero, Rolf. That's what we were. That's at least how I felt, that we were, we were on a mission to do this thing, that every single night when I would hear that train at night, it called me out there. You know, I know that you know, there's a Kerouac story Hemingway jumped trains in the summer of 1916. Jack London uh, jumped trains and was actually arrested, <clears throat> spent some time in jail for, for trespassing. There's a guy named W.H. Davies who wrote a book called Autobiography of a Super Tramp, which mm -hmm. makes me wonder if mm -hmm. that may have influenced uh, the nickname Super Tramp mm -hmm. uh, that Alex McCandless of In, uh, in, the, in the Wild yeah. fame. Um, and there's actually, a, there's actually a train jumping scene in right. Into the Wild, right. um, which actually... And here's the thing, not to get ahead of ourselves, but we were, we're contextualizing things. So about 1991, we were like strange romantic idiots, like <laughs> Dead Poet Society people. No, we were nothing chasing is, nothing trains. has changed. <laughs> <laughs> we were chasing trains in, a, in our college town, maybe around 1991. We talked about Christopher McCandless. We jumped trains in July of 1992. Mm -hmm. They found his body in August of 1992. Right. So the summer that we were jumping trains, his train jumping episodes, which came, which were featured in the movie, had had finished by that time. Mm -hmm. So he beat us. He probably he probably jumped trains through the Pacific Northwest like right. we jumped trains right. through the Pacific Northwest. Right. It's sort of a classic place to jump trains. Have you seen the movie version? Yep. Him jumping trains. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of vivid scenes in that. One is that he he jumps on train on the train, and he starts singing "King of the Road." <laughs> Got no cigarettes, but two hours. Of we'll get to this, but I remember how, that well, first time that you catch a train. How first, exciting! When it we is. first got on the train, I pulled out a harmonica, you know, and we, did. we started we started playing, singing, and, uh, and we'll get to that. But then the second time, yeah. and this also ties into something that happened to us. He got beat up by by a, a bull. Right. Show me your face. I never ever ever forget a face. If I see yours again, I won't arrest you. I'll kill you. This is the goddamn railroad, and we will do whatever we have to do to keep you freeloaders from violating our liability. Yes, sir. But, and a bull is the security guard on, on, on a rail. Right. Now, not to give too much away, we didn't literally get beat up, but um, we ran into some trouble mm -hmm. with the rail yard bulls. But in the movie, he actually, there's a scene where he gets the shit beaten out of him, right. basically, on the tracks. And so it's interesting how... <clears throat> He was a part of that romanticism mm -hmm. too. It's like the, it's like the romanticism of a previous generation. That movie didn't come out until the two thousand, so it wasn't like that movie inspired us. But somehow we are of Christopher McCandless's right. generation. It, it overlapped. Little, it overlapped. He's a little bit older than us, but still, we are of that generation. I think he's my sister's age, actually. That thought, jumping trains and having adventures and dreaming of this uncertain call to adventure, was a thing. 
Yes. You didn't you didn't call up the internet and look at pictures of the rest of the world. You dreamed of the rest of the world. You read stories about right. old men now dead jumping trains in the 20s and 30s. Um, and so let's tie a line then between us randomly chasing trains through a college town as mm -hmm. young men to us literally catching out trains like hobos in the summer of 92. How did we figure out, how did we decide that we were actually gonna jump trains instead of just racing them? Because there's a third character, a, a, there's, oh, yeah. there, there's, an, there's a, a, an eight ball character named Matthew <laughs> who we'll get to in a second, but then I remember we, we couldn't go online and figure out how to jump trains. We couldn't read old books. Well, we could read old books, but there was no current information. So we literally, to catch trains in the summer of 92, we had to do some, some investigation and research to figure out how to catch trains. Right. So many times in life, it comes down to the one person you meet that can maybe give you just a little bit of guidance. And not to get too, you know, we've already called it the call to adventure and the, maybe the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, but there's gotta be a wise one. A wise mentor has to intercede and put you on that path. And for us, it was a professor at the school. Obi-Wan? I mean, is, is, is that the figure of the hero's journey? Well, we did sit at his feet. You know, <laughs> if, you were, if you remember, we walked, we walked into his office. Professor Arnold yeah, and is a, a psychology professor at our college. And how we knew he was a train jumper, I, I no longer remember how we knew he jumped trains. Some, maybe just word was out that he was a little bit of a bohemian. Mm -hmm. And that he had a hobby of, and he must have been in his 50s or something. Right. But he had a, like a hobby of jumping trains. And so we approached we him. pestered this old badger. Uh, and he, would, he wanted no business with us at all. He's like, too dangerous. You're going to die. I don't want to be responsible. And we just wore this old man down. Mr. Arnold, if you're listening, we apologize. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you, gave us, well, you gave us one of the great pieces of advice. Sitting in his office with you, mm -hmm. and he didn't make eye contact. He was very generous. He gave us great information. And I feel like you remember it better than me. So what lessons did he teach us? Okay, well, this is important because what the professor did was give us five basic rules for train jumping. And these are very important because we broke every single one of these rules. Rule number one, and again, this is an old man, here's Rolf and I, sitting at this, this professor's feet, and he said, number one, never jump on a moving train. Number two, never ride with your legs hanging outside of a boxcar, because the doors can slam shut. Number three, this is the one we would have never thought of, when the train goes through a tunnel, lay down, because the sudden gas or the heat can rise and make you pass out and you can uh, hit your head and it can be very uh, dangerous. Number four, never jump from a moving train. And number five, never talk to anyone or accept any kind of drink from someone who approaches you because the hobo element is very notorious for a criminal underground. These five rules, we broke every single one of them. We, 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 um, we did, and those stories are to come. Um, but it's still dangerous to jump trains. I think. I don't like about 800 people die a year on tracks and they're not all train jumpers. Mm -hmm. Some of them are just drunks or they're people shooting like YouTube videos <laughs> about <laughs> physical fitness or something. Right. Right. But <clears throat> the Darwin Awards. Yeah, well, but, but hobos and train jumpers still die on the tracks. And mm -hmm. I think this is another reason why train jumping hasn't blown up like other aspects of travel with the information that comes with the internet, that it's, it's a dirty and dangerous undertaking. And so there's one more, we'll talk a little bit about the summer of 92 because it was sort of a funny summer, but there's one other thing. We somehow got a Burlington Northern map mm 
Somehow we found out that the Burlington Northern lot in Vancouver, Washington, which is across the river, not to be confused with Vancouver, Canada, across the river from Portland, Oregon, right. was the best place to catch trains. And so our plan, and um, our plan, which immediately went awry, was to jump trains to Canada. Right. And the idea was that we were going to jump trains, visit our friend Jeff, who's been a guest on this co- podcast before, went on my first vagabonding trip with me, and then continue into Canada. If they were stopped at the border, we were going to sneak into Canada and jump trains mm-hmm. into Canada. Well, we didn't come close. Right. We jumped trains for three days and didn't come close to right. Canada for reasons right. that we will outline in a second. So there was a certain point at which we ended up in the Burlington Northern Yard in mm-hmm. Vancouver, Washington. But just to sort of set the stage a little, it was one of those weird summers that only happens to you when you're about that age because I was living in the basement of my friend's house whose, whose brother ended up um, jumping trains with us. Um, Matthew. Matthew. <laughs> and she was um, she was a good friend from college. She was also on the track team. Um, but we didn't know Matthew very well. We didn't know her brother very well, but this guy was fearless. He was. And this is, we can romanticize, you know, the mad ones, whatever. Right. But for some reason, you and I, we read books of poetry. We were, we were, <laughs> we were jocks, but we were sort of literary guys too. Yeah. Whereas Matthew was just like, he just had no fear. Right. And he was a little bit weird. Right? Yes. And so that summer, I had several jobs, one of which, well, we worked together at the Irvington Group. We, we painted apartment buildings. Yes, we did. I, I was an extra in the movie Dr. Giggles, <laughs> which will probably have to be its own episode of the Deviate podcast, my, my time as an extra in Dr. Giggles. And then I was sort of paying my rent at their house by helping him build onto the house. But like he was such an autodidact weirdo that he didn't have plans. He would just get wood and, and cement and we would just hammer stuff onto the, onto the house. And I think you and I were probably sort of talking out of our asses about jumping trains. And so Matthew is like, let's do it. Yeah. And so he was, he was the catalyst, I think. He was. And Matthew, just to kind of describe him a little bit, if you know, Jackass was a popular show that had come out at that time and Every group of friends has a fringe person that will show up at a party and staple their testicles. Matthew was that guy. He would do. He would ride a bicycle off a off a off a top of a house. Matthew was really truly crazy, right? But he was he was also very sort of prim, right? Mm-hmm. So he was crazy, but he was prim. Like he didn't use swear words, right? Um, he didn't was, drink. Didn't drink. Was a little bit shy around right. girls, mm-hmm. but. Um, he was also obsessed with a movie called King of the North Pole, which is, which is an earnest, do you know this movie? 1933, the depths of the Great Depression, an army of homeless men roamed the land, stealing rides on the railroads. They were nomads who lived by no law but their own, and dedicated to their destruction was the railroad man who stood between them and the trains. It's an Ernest Borgnine, Lee Marvin movie that was made in 1973. Love Lee Marvin. Give me more Lee Marvin. (laughs) And this is another generational thing. Like when we were young men, Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine were were like the... The The dirty dozen, yeah. The brawny macho guys of another generation. Maybe two generations ahead of us. These were the brawny guys. They were old men by the time that we were young men. But there was a movie. It was not a successful movie called King of the North Pole. Mm about Lee Marvin is a train jumper, a freight train hopper, and Lee Marvin is a, is a rail yard bull who doesn't want anybody to jump on his train. There's no rides. And so it's sort of this weird, 
I've I've read that the movie is sort of an it's sort of an it's sort of like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, only less artistically successful. Right. It's a, basically that Lee Marvin is fighting the man, and Ernest oh, yeah. Borgnine is yeah. the man. So like Ernest Borgnine is is Nurse Ratched, and Lee Marvin <laughs> is Randall P. McMurphy. Right. But instead of an insane asylum in Oregon, it is literally a train movie in Oregon. Mm-hmm. That movie was shot around Cottage Grove, mm-hmm. um, and it is about. Oh, it's like the the Oregon Northern Train Line or something. The Oregon right. Pacific and Eastern Train Line. It's sticking it to the man. It's Cool Hand Luke. Nobody can eat fifty eggs. Right, and and our friend. Well, let's call him an acquaintance because yeah. Matthew was such he was a, fringe. He was such an oddball that that I, I liked Matthew and he liked us. But it's not like we hung out with Matthew. Right. It's just that he would he would say, "Well, we're building onto the house today, so we'd hammer boards all day," and then. He'd say, "Well, when are we jumping trains?" And so we, <laughs> I guess we're jumping trains. Had now. To jump trains. And in fact, he he donated like he had some Russian army surplus sleeping bags mm-hmm. that we brought for the trip. And um, <clears throat> I guess I'm getting ahead of us a little bit. We bought some supplies. I remember I we, we got some supplies. I bought sardines because mm-hmm. it sort of seemed like train jumping. Oh, food. we were so unprepared. We just so <laughs> we had a block of cheese. We had some tins of sardines. <laughs> Just straight out of a book. We're such <laughs> novice noobs. We got a you know a gallon of water, and so this happened smack in the middle of mm-hmm. summer, um, because I kept a journal on this. We jumped trains from July 10th through 12th, 1992. Um, so we were semi-employed. We were working as movie movie extras. You were living. You were at your parents' house out in mm-hmm. Colton, Oregon. Colton, Oregon. Um, I was in a suburb of Portland at the time. And it's one of those times that, that, that again, you you become adult enough and it's hard to remember what it's like to be semi-employed and not really having any money and not really caring and getting some work here and there. I think there were times when Don didn't pay us, you know. And it was summertime and, you know. (laughs) Well, there there was an island in the Willamette River. We used to swim out to to go to island and like sleep there. Right. I mean, this is some real Huck Finn shit, man. Right. <laughs> like we, this was, <clears throat> again, when I, I often trace my vagabonding days back to 1994 when Jeff and I took Van across the USA. And of course you met us for that trip, but that was organized. That mm-hmm. was that was the real deal. That was taking it seriously. This was just so tied up in whimsy and dreaming mm-hmm. and reading books right. and watching movies and hearing train whistles that it's a really unquite thing. But I think we've, we've, we've put a, pin on something which is that without Matthew we may not have done right, it. Right. Basically we were talking shit about jumping trains and Matthew he is called, sort of this oddball who just shows up with the army surplus sleeping bags and is like, when are we doing it? Yeah. <laughs> well if we're all, you know talk about the hero's journey, we all everyone needs a, a sidekick. Right. So what so if he's Matt, Matthew is the Han is Solo. Han Solo? <laughs> Matthew, weirdly enough he's the Han Solo. <laughs> One thing about Matthew is he's a big tall guy. Yeah. He was a couple years older than us, a big strapping tall guy, right. very eccentric, right. an autodidact, but maybe not classroom smart, but sort of can build a room onto a house smart. Right. And um, he had watched this movie and he just decided that we were going to do it. Basically, he didn't realize that, that you and I you know, are a little bit full of shit sometimes. <laughs> and, and so he just decided to invite himself along right. to a train trip and we realized that we had to take right. it. Can you think of any other preparation before we, like, who did Marnie drive us out to the train we, yard in we Vancouver? Had, we had thought that we could catch it from Portland. You know, a lot of trains cross over the border, but the 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 shipyard at Vancouver was so immense, just massive tracks, and it was very wide open. 
we could easily get into the, the bushes there. But we had a map, we had uh, just a simple backpack. And, um, but somebody must have driven us there because we didn't leave a car. Probably Marnie. Uh, we'll have to find It was probably because we were working with Marnie. Right. Marnie, who that summer married our friend Brian, actually. Right. Um, she worked with us. Mm-hmm. And so I think she basically, she was another person who heard us talking out of our ass, <laughs> painting apartments every day. And you have to keep in mind that this is, this is like a 1990s summer job job. Right. We're basically, we went into apartments that were between tenants, we would clean them, we would paint them, mm-hmm. and then we'd move on to a new apartment. And, right. and Marnie was on our team, and she was a good friend, also a track team person. Mm-hmm. So I think we caught a ride to the yard with her, and despite the fact that we did, we'd interviewed our professor, we were such noobs, man. We, we didn't, didn't know, know what anything. we were doing. We didn't know anything. Like, I don't think, I don't think we realized that you don't, that not everybody jumps in box cars. Right. But what was the fir- what, what kind of car was the first car well, we got to ride on? You know, that's that's breaking the first rule. So if if we're at this point in the story, we go down to the big train yard. We're just sort of walking through the corners and getting to our place. We hang out in these this briar patch, this shrub, and we see the trains. And when the train begins to move, it's this incredible uh, clanging of the the latches together. So suddenly the train begins to move. And you're like, that's it. That's our train. And so we broke rule number one. And well, we jumped on a train. moving train. train. And I, was, I had the backpacks. I had this giant mm-hmm. rucksack. And so I had the hardest time getting on the train. Right. How, we must have waited two or three hours before oh, we were train there. For, yeah, it was. This is another piece of advice. You, you go to a rail yard. You have to find the rail yard. Somebody had given us some advice to go to the Vancouver rail yards. But um, they also said, if you find a friendly brakeman, you can mm-hmm. ask them when the train is going. And right. I seem to recall that there were some friendly brakemen in that mm-hmm. yard. There were a few hobos, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't remember a ton of hobos in that for in the Vancouver yard. But we, you know, we we hung around and then we we sort of staked out a boxcar, mm-hmm. and then by golly, it started moving. Right. And we jumped on the train. And, and Matthew, of course, jumps onto the side rails. <laughs> so Matthew's just hanging on, and you know. This was, this was the second most blissful part of the adventure. <laughs> and you have to keep in mind, just, just so my eyes know, train jumping is actually not fun. It's a great adventure and it's hardcore and it's interesting. But the romantic part of train jumping goes right out the window. Very yeah. limited. <laughs> when you're sitting in the dust waiting for this stupid train to move. The number one most romantic, aesthetically best part also happened on the first day. But the second best part was jumping on this boxcar. Mm-hmm. And I remember Matthew was hanging off the ladder. You were playing yeah. your harmonica. I'm on, I'm on. We're like, not inside. What are you doing? <laughs> well, see, what he knew about jumping trains was with his, from this movie. Right. Um, in fact, he had this plan, if we went through a channel, to like use his belt buckle to buckle himself oh, to the top of Rob, the train the, the car. The deeper we get into the story, we should have died so many times. <laughs> well, There's Matthew, so many ways Matthew to die. should have died for sure. Right. And, and, and just so people know, and, and this is actually a warning to people listening, train jumping is really freaking dangerous. Yeah. Train jumping is really dangerous for a number of reasons. There's getting on or getting off of trains, getting scraped off of trains, exposure, getting mugged by other hobos, um, getting you know beat up by random people. Right. So... <clears throat> You have to realize that actually probably the best part of the adventure was that first 20 minutes we were on the boxcar. We, th- we were going north. We thought we were going to go to Seattle. We were going to mm-hmm. jump out. We are going to have dinner with our friend Jeff and his right. lovely family in the suburbs mm-hmm. of Seattle. Matthew was hanging off the train. 
you were playing music and I felt like I was there, like I was in a Kerouac right, book. Right. And then the train stops. Stops. In Longview, Washington. Yeah, about 30 minutes from the Vancouver Yard. So those 30 minutes of absolute bliss yeah. were finished and then what? We're stuck. And that's as far as the train went. Yep. That basically, there may have been a train that went to Seattle from that yard, right. but we did not find it. We didn't have a schedule. We didn't know which train was which, where they were going. We just hopped on and it ended abruptly. So we had a beautiful boxcar ride. After like a two hour wait, we jumped on a boxcar. We rode it for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. we, we wandered around the Longview yard. And then I think we asked at Bregman because we came, we went back to Vancouver pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we would have independently made that decision. I, I think mm -hmm. we talked to some Brakeman and they said, yeah, this is a local dude. Right. Go, go back, you wanna to go to Seattle or someplace. Well, in fact, I think they, they said, yeah, you can't get to Seattle from this yard. Go to Spokane if you're mm -hmm. gonna jump trains on, on the Northwest. So we went back to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. There are wild blackberries. If, you know, if you're not familiar with the Pacific Northwest, there's wild blackberries everywhere. So we were like eating blackberries. Again, we were still very much mm -hmm. in the romantic aspect of this right. adventure. Um, and we decided to catch a train going east to Spokane. So do you remember anything else that we did at the, well, at the yard that day? I will, I will say this about jumping on trains, uh, that it's the movies get it wrong every time because when you're, you know, Charles Grodin in Midnight, um, Midnight Run and you're running on the train, that's not how it is at all. The train is elevated. So first of all, there's like a little small elevation that you, you run up. And so to jump up onto the train is, you have to be very, very tough and in shape. Second, there's gravel everywhere. So your feet are slipping, it's really, really hard. It looks easy in movies, but in reality, it was really, really tough just to jump into the boxcar. It's like having to jump almost six feet in the air and then and waddle your way in. So it was, again, very dangerous. Easily you could fall under, and that was one of the first reasons we could have died just right from the start. Well, the best plan, and experienced hobos will say, you ask around, you find out which train is leaving when, and then you get on it before it starts yes. moving. Then you're on the train when it Hobo starts Hobo wisdom moving. 101, yes. Yeah. And so, it's, yeah, it's much safer. Now, one thing to keep in mind, too, one thing I didn't understand until we started jumping trains, it's not a customer-oriented business. <laughs> I don't care who's on the train. Mm -hmm. That basically this is a freight train. You know that their their schedule depends on how much freight they have. Mm -hmm. And so when we started asking the brakemen when the trains were leaving, I think they gave us sort of plus or minus eight hours type figures. Right. Right. And sometimes they'd get like a radio call from the engineer. It's like, okay, yeah, this one's leaving in the next fifteen minutes. And so when we got back to um, to the Vancouver yard. Somebody told us that there was a train going to Pasco, which which would mm -hmm. give us get us halfway to Spokane. Right. And I wish, you know, it's funny we didn't bring a camera or any recording right. equipment at all. It's funny nobody would think, you know, who mm -hmm. would do this without a camera these right. days? This is a remarkable adventure. We had no way. So I don't remember what these brakemen looked like. Mm -hmm. I, I get the sense that they were fairly young, maybe thirties or something. It doesn't not like they mm -hmm. were old geezers, or at least the ones that we interacted with were fairly young. But they basically said. Um, yeah, this is a good one. Go to mm -hmm. Pasco. This won't get you to Spokane, but this will get you halfway there. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we're going to try to go to Spokane and then go to Seattle from, Puskan, from right. Spokane. And if you look at a map of Washington State, that is not very efficient at all. Mm -hmm. Also, if you look at a map, just so listeners know, Pasco, 
don't know, was it halfway between Portland, Oregon and, right. and, and, and Spokane, yeah. Washington? Along the, along the Columbia River, there's a beautiful yeah. river between both states. And so it's very scenic and it's very lovely. So we got into what's called a gondola. I, at the time I called it a chip car because it's basically a giant iron shoebox without a lid. Right. And they, in the Pacific Northwest, they put um, wood chips in them. Right. And this was mostly empty. Yeah, you climb up a ladder and then scale down inside this big shoebox type car. Yeah. And this leads into what was, for me, my favorite part of the trip, mm -hmm. the, the, the most beautiful and romantic part of the trip, where basically we had this gondola car to ourselves, this big, noisy, iron wood chip car mm -hmm. with two or three iron struts going across it and a net inside that usually keeps the wood chips from, from blowing out, but most of the wood chips had been taken out. So you and me and Matthew made a giant hammock mm -hmm. out of this net um, on the struts of the gondola car. And by giant hammock, like this is, this is a giant hammock. <laughs> it slept all three of us. It, it, could have, it could have fit six people easily. Right. And so... Laying on our backs, looking up at the sky, the clouds rolling by, that train sound. This is how I yeah. want to remember it. And, and not to give too much away, but it gets much, much worse after this. That basically we were sitting, we made ourselves a hammock. We're going through the Columbia Gorge, which is beautiful. People mm -hmm. pay money to be tourists in the Columbia Gorge. It was the end of the day, the sun right. was setting. Right. Um, we were sitting in our hammock. If you sat up, we could wave to cars on, on the highway. Right. Is it I-80? I-84. I-84. People would wave back. People were so fascinated. Um, <laughs> we, I, we probably ate some sardines. It was, if train jumping was always like those two hour, those three hours of Pasco, right. then everybody would change up all the time. It was so beautiful and it was so perfect. Mm -hmm. And we were so pleased with ourselves. <laughs> And little did we know. <laughs> it was just going to go terrible from there. <laughs> it was the downward yeah. spiral. And then the downward spiral is actually much more accurate. Like, right. I don't know how many hobos actually have these really aesthetically beautiful times, but we had two of them. We had mm -hmm. the open boxcar going north to Longview where you were playing the harmonica. That didn't last very long. And then this, through the gorge at sunset mm -hmm. on a giant hammock in a gondola car, it was, it was really, really perfect. Right. And that was... When we were chasing trains through Newburgh, Oregon, dreaming of jumping trains, that's exactly what we were jumping, dreaming of, not realizing that that's a, sort of an outlier. Right. That basically hobo life, and actually I looked this up, do you know the difference between a hobo and a tramp and a bum? Sounds like a punchline coming. <laughs> this goes back to the, to the Great Depression. A hobo is someone who jumps trains mm -hmm. or otherwise travels, but in the Great Depression, jumping trains was a big way to, to, to travel because hitching... There's so many people were out of work that people just didn't pick up hitchhikers. And, and people, not that many people had cars. So hobo is someone who travels, who jump, rides the rails looking for work. Mm -hmm. A tramp is someone who rides the rails or otherwise travels, but isn't really working for work, looking for work. A bum is a person who's not looking for work and is not traveling. <laughs> so where do we fit in the scale? Somewhere between Ooh. bum and tramp? Well, we were tourists, for sure. <laughs> well, we were tramps. And that, that's interesting that... Um, Actually, there's there's a, a book, A Tramp Abroad. Who wrote A Tramp Abroad? Um, is that? Oh, that's Mark Twain. Yeah, so um, I think it's Mark Twain. So yeah, we, we use these, these words have become vernacular, but they actually go back to the train jumping days that a bum, we say, oh, someone is a bum. Well, a bum is literally 
A bum is someone who just doesn't want to work, but isn't motivated enough to travel for it. Whereas a tramp is like a vagabonder, mm -hmm. you know, like we were basically tramps that we weren't looking for work. We had a, we had a silly job in Portland, Oregon. Right. Um, and then hobos are people who are jumping trains looking for work. Now, I think that true hobos went away in the Great Depression because the people who were jumping trains that we met, and we'll get to that in a second, were sort of semi-criminal. Um, yes. Not always completely unmentally ill, um, rough around the edges, not right. really looking for work. Right, right. Um, you can you can say all your off the grid type people living today, but it yeah. was not like that. This was a criminal element. This was people trying to erase their past yeah. and and hide out from you know the law. And, and they really came into the story the last day. Right. Um, and so it's funny. I just gave this definition of hobos, tramps, and bums when actually none of them really existed right. during our time there. That what we, what we would think of was ho were hobos were not really hobos. They were sort of tramps, but they were more just indigent people. In a way, they were bums, you know. Mm -hmm. And there is a gang called the FTRA. You know, I'm not sure if, I'm sure that some of the, the, the hobos we met were FTRA. FTRA is, is, the best equivalent is like the Hell's Angels. Like, so after World War II, there was a bunch of soldiers who were sort of damaged by World War II and, and, um, thought normal life wasn't enough of an adventure. So they started riding motorcycles around and getting in fights and they were hell's angels. Where after the Vietnam War, some Vietnam vets started the FTRA in the 80s, I think, and they were train jumpers. They weren't motorcycle riders, but they were, you know, maybe some rough and tough damaged people, a little bit into crime, but low level crime like theft and drugs and maybe even like food stamp fraud type stuff. But in the 90s, this was a big deal. And in the Pacific Northwest, and particularly Spokane, Washington, if you look at the, at the records, that basically these railroad hobo gangs, they were all around us, you know? Um, and I'm, I don't want to over-dramatize this and say that we were in danger, but we could have been in danger. That there, there were literally murders in some of the rail yards that we traveled through at the time. Well, there was also a, a train uh, killer. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't know this at the time. I, I learned this, and I share it with you, mm -hmm. in researching for this podcast. He's called the Boxcar Killer. And he, oh, he operated in the Pacific Northwest at the time. He wasn't arrested until like 95 or 96. Mm -hmm. I'll put it in the show notes. So there, he has a Wikipedia page. But he was a guy who, he may have started in California. He was maybe a little bit bipolar. Um, sometimes he would steal food stamps or shoes from tramps, but sometimes he would just lose his mind and beat people to death. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, there was no internet back then and nobody, there's no journalistic beat covering the deaths of hobos. Mm -hmm. So during the time that we were jumping trains in the Pacific Northwest, two or three times a year, one of his victims would turn right. up by the side of the tracks. And, and we, this, was, <laughs> this was the ignorance is bliss aspect of our trip. So... You know, just for Sponics here, we had these two really romantic rides. We were frustrated because we weren't getting to Seattle. Little, little did we know that these were the best parts right. of our trip. Right. Um, so we ended up at, at the yard in Pasco, which is well, in the middle of the, Washington. The, we fall asleep on this hammock. And at least for me, I wake up. It's pitch dark. The train has already stopped. We're in the yard. And now what? So where are we? And I think Matthew had maybe climbed out and was walking around or... You know, we wake up in this beautiful little hammock. And so what's... 
Well, What's the plan? This is something I didn't realize until I read my journal about the experience, that my strongest memories of the Columbia Gorge are, are sitting in the hammock and watching the beautiful scenery. Mm -hmm. You and I fell asleep. Right. We fell asleep on a moving car <laughs> in a hammock going through the yeah. gorge. And if Matthew hadn't have woken us up, Matthew actually got us out of the hammock and said, we're at the Pasco Yard. Let's mm -hmm. figure out what to do. And, you know, I doubt... They wouldn't have told us to get off at the Pasco Yard if that car had been going all the way to Spokane. Anyway, it probably, if it would have left the Pasco Yard, it may have gone to a place without access to anything. Because I know that we did go to a diner and we had pancakes. Yes. And that may have been the last, last best part of it. <laughs> so, so, again, this is something you probably won't find train jumping. Mm -hmm. A boxcar and a harmonica out and back. A gondola car with a giant hammock through a beautiful gorge. And then you eat pancakes like in, in a Quentin Tarantino right, movie. at midnight. At midnight. <laughs> and then we went back to the yard. Mm -hmm. And we, we and there were there were bulls riding around on ATVs. So yeah. there were there was a lot of action flying and, and around the And a bull is basically a railroad policeman. Right. And what we didn't know at the time, but they were, they were watching us. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to go back to the yard and try to sleep. Because we were asking around. There were no trains leaving. I think they said that maybe in, in the morning they would leave it. it first light or something and I forget where you ended up but I ended up sleeping in the scoop of a, of a loader that was tied to one of the flat cars that um, I think I got that one of those Russian sleeping bags and I slept I just thought it was cool mm -hmm. and you have to understand this is like it's like a bulldozer thing but it's like a scoop loader right <laughs> and it's tied to a train and I just decided it was raining mm -hmm. it started to rain and I slept in the scoop of a scoop loader. Where did you where did you and Matthew sleep? I think we slept on the side of the tracks out in the shrubs. Okay. Because uh, the the you had a sleeping bag and I think Matthew, Matthew had a sleeping bag, but I didn't. Yeah. And so this comes up later uh, with the freezing cold that we endured on the ride back. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was cold. I wrapped myself up in anything I could find. Yeah. But around dawn, a train left mm -hmm. for Spokane. And I don't know if it was the car that I was sleeping on, but we got on one of those flat cars, which sort of spelled our doom mm -hmm. <clears throat> because the flat cars are what got us in trouble by the time we got to Spokane. So describe this. So a flat car is this, it's just a flat car with machinery on it. It's completely exposed. Completely you are exposed and the machinery is chained onto yeah. it. Yeah, good point. We should probably, actually, I, I didn't, I, I vernacularly gave these different kinds of cars mm -hmm. names, but you can find them on Wikipedia. Right. So a box car is a box car, right? Doors on the side, open, closed. A, a gondola is like what I call a chip car. It's just like a basic, a giant shoebox, an open-roofed iron shoebox. A flat car is basically, it's like a, what's the truck equivalent of that? Like a flatbed. Flatbed. Um, and then they also had a covered, what's the name of the grain? Oh, hopper. Covered, covered a hopper. hopper. Yeah. Where they put usually grain inside, mm -hmm. and it's like a trapezoid, and there's like porches on either end that you can ride They're on. They're very, very small. And it's, it's completely just a ledge inside. You're looking down at the tracks as the train is rolling. Yeah. So, again, really dangerous. There's also the, the tank car and the coal, the, the coal car and things like that. But. Right, yeah, I think the tank car is similar to the covered hopper. And there's, it has little balconies that you right. can ride on. Right. But we, there are no, basically there are no boxcars. Right. I think boxcars are, are sort of, nobody, boxcars are an old 30s through 50s mm -hmm. thing. Like once they started using flat cars, they're easier to 
right. load and unload. Basically, boxcars are just these antique things. And even in the 90s, there weren't that many of them. And so it was the covered hoppers that we ended up riding most of the time. But the, the idiosyncrasy of this trip is that the train stopped in the middle of the Eastern Washington desert because an Amtrak was coming through. Right, so we get out of Pasco on this flat car with some tractors or things that are kind of you know, strapped on and we ride eight hours into just away from the gorge into these fields and it's very nice. But then as you said, the train just stops in the middle of nowhere. Eastern Washington wilderness. And I know that it was it was a nice day, and this is something that, that I wondered about what would have happened <laughs> in, in a different scenario. Basically, I got off the car. It was a warm day. We were sort of in this sandy, deserty area. I, I sort of sat down in a sand dune and fell asleep. Mm-hmm. And you guys were asleep on the flat car. If that train had left and Matthew had... and I were alone, he would have killed me. <laughs> you would have killed you and I would have started death in the desert. Basically, there's no cell there phones. Was, yeah, there were weird, there's no frame Completely of in the middle of nowhere. I was, I had no, there was, we didn't have any, right. we had the Burlington Northern map, but that was a railroad map. Right. I didn't know where I was. So I'm glad that I woke up before the train started going again. Yeah. Um, and then we rolled into Spokane. As we rolled into Spokane, Spokane, by the way, is a, is a great, great town. That is a cool city. Uh, but. We, we roll in and we're completely visible to the highway, to the streets. We're standing there kind of hiding behind these tractors and that's when they bust us. Well, that's when they saw us. They didn't yeah. bust us until later because I, I, I wrote this in the journal. And when you think you said Spokane is a cool town, well, this is one thing to keep in mind if you're jumping trains is that train yards are never in the nice part of town. Right. Train yards are always in industrial areas. And so... I've never been to Spokane as a tourist, unless we ran track meets there or something. No, it's too far. Um, so my memories of Spokane are entirely of this junky trail, mm-hmm. rail, rail yard area. And so we, we were going through Spokane. The bulls saw us, but then they didn't bust us immediately because we decided to go get food. We went to a Chinese restaurant. Well, wait a second. Now we've, we've broken rule number one, which we jumped on a moving train. We broke okay. rule number two, never ride with your legs hanging outside playing a ridiculous harmonica. Oh, right. uh, <laughs> The tunnel part, we had gone through many tunnels, but we didn't, um, we laid down. But the fourth rule of never jump from a moving train, and here's where we broke it. We all jumped from that train. Yes, we did, because we just went head over, tails rolling in that rock. It was brutal. We dusted ourselves off. There was a Chinese restaurant nearby. I wrote in my journal that they were really nice. And by this point, I think we were pretty dirty, pretty smelly. filthy. And they were just... They, it was as if we'd come in tuxedos. They're just right. the nicest, most polite mm-hmm. Chinese restaurant people. And then we paid our bill. Mm-hmm. We gave them a nice tip. We walked back to the yard and we were immediately arrested. Yes. That basically they had, the, the bulls, the, the rail yard police had seen us come in and they were looking for us. Mm-hmm. And so basically um, we were like their gift that morning. Right. Is that we came in with our bellies full of Chinese food and they arrested us. So what do you remember of the arrest process? Well, they rolled up in their little vehicles and the guy was furious. You know, he's out yelling at us and put your backs down and stand there with your legs open and legs apart and show me your fingers. Take out your IDs and show me your fingers. So his way of identifying us was to have our license out with our fingers, like we're making the okay sign with our fingers mm-hmm. out. And he would take a picture of, of us because if you remember, that if we were mangled or you know, run over by the train, that this is how they were going to identify us. 
And this that's one thing to keep in mind is that there's sort of a security issue, but there's also a liability issue. And I don't think we looked like freight train riders of association gang members, right. that we looked like the dorky college students that right. we were. And so basically they were trying to scare us into leaving the trail yard because basically a, a dumb college kid loses a leg right. in the Spokane trail yard and the liability is on them. Right. And what I didn't know at the time is that they had found, the summer before, they found at least one dead body right. in the Spokane rail yard. Right. It was a big um, freight train riders of association gang territory type thing. The boxcar killer <laughs> went through Spokane. <laughs> there was Basically, a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> in retrospect, it was probably just as well we were arrested. Um, and we actually filled out, I would, this is in my journal, we filled out some paperwork. Mm-hmm. Somewhere, uh, we're on file. Right. In Spokane, Spokane uh, train station, Spokane train office. Bull office. And basically he said, I'm not going to arrest you. I'm not going to like throw you in jail. Right. But if you come back, I will. We're in the Spokane rail yard. Mm-hmm. There's no cell phones. Right. We didn't have really we had had no, way to call. no way to call. No way to have someone pick us up. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, we basically hung out in the weeds and the trash for 12 hours. Yes. We, we, we were hiding in the bushes. I remember cars driving by. One of them said, mm-hmm. get a life. Yeah. I'm thinking, this is life. I'm jumping train. I got my life. The, the, basically, they saw us out there and just the most disdainful voice ever. Get right. a life. You hippie. And they were young people. They were like, I think they were younger than us. Probably. Right. Yeah, probably high school kids or something. So basically, and this is, this, is, this is when it really got miserable. In fact, dangers and weird experiences with hobos notwithstanding, sitting for 12 hours in a rail yard not knowing when you're right. gonna leave is right. not fun. Right. Abysmal. And I think we were trying, we were hoping to go to Seattle. Like right. I think there was a train that left from Montana that we could have got on, but if we would have gotten that Montana train, we'd, st- right. we'd probably still be out there. Right. Um, we were trying to go to, we were desperately trying to go to right. Seattle. We, we thought, we thought about, we were just going to boomerang around and head yeah. west and, and, you know, still be heroes and land in, in Seattle. So for 12 hours. We sat there, miserable, and with, with Matthew. The, with Matthew, the very, very eccentric <laughs> acquaintance. Um, and one thing I will say, one advantage of staying there for 12 hours is that there's a work shift change. Mm-hmm. And so when we got caught by bulls the second time, and this is interesting, it was a younger bull. Mm-hmm. He didn't throw us in jail. I don't think we tried to run from him. We probably could have outrun any of those guys. We were in good shape. Mm-hmm. But um, basically we were so depressed and exhausted. I think we'd been there by that. I think we talked to him, didn't we? We talked no, to him about he, music. They, we, and he gave us advice. Yeah. He, he basically said, we, we told him what happened. He said, oh, you got arrested because you came in on the, like I heard about you guys, you came in on a flat car. Uh-huh. Basically, the flat cars have machinery chained onto them. That machinery shifts, shifts and right. it can kill you. Right. And so basically, freight cars are not made for passengers. Mm-hmm. None of them are made for passengers. Right. Box cars are actually pretty good for passengers. Um, covered hoppers are okay. Mm-hmm. Oil cars are okay. Gondolas are okay if they're empty. Flat cars are freaking dangerous. For, for hoppers and even hobos, it's ho- hobos won't ride them mm-hmm. because literally you have a tractor and it shifts on a trip from Vancouver to Spokane. Your leg and, breaks. And, and if, no, if nobody's riding on it, who cares? Like the people who tie the tractors on there aren't thinking about passengers because they're not made for passengers. And so basically a big piece of machinery will shift like it's sort of like it's been designed to mm-hmm. do. 
It's probably easier on the machinery if it shifts a little. Right. But if you're sitting in a wheel well, it could crush right. you. Right. And so this cool bull told us that. <laughs> and we're like, oh. Hey, you idiots. Don't you know? <laughs> right. So it's funny. That basically, the old bull did everything but beat us up. Right. Um, and then the young bull basically said, well, here's your problem. Right. And, and so I think, I, I think it's literally the young bull said, mm -hmm. and, and just to distinguish, a, a bull is a policeman and then the, the, uh, the linemen mm -hmm. are the workers. They're not security. Linemen are working on the train. The bulls are enforcing the law in the yard. So this guy wasn't a lineman. The lineman had been cool to us. The bulls had not been cool to us. This bull was cool. Right. And he said, get a covered hopper. He probably mm -hmm. covered, he called it a covered hopper. I right. didn't know what it was called at the time. But basically those cars full of grain with the, with the balconies on the end, mm -hmm. get one of those. There's no box cars out here. Mm -hmm. Stay off the flat cars. If you find a gondola that's empty, you can try, you can try to ride on it. But find a gondola or a covered hopper. And so that's what we did. I think we hung out for a couple more hours. Mm -hmm. yep. We maybe got some more food. And it's just like... No, we didn't. Because our food had run out. Okay. And our water was running out. That one jug, yeah. that gallon uh, of water had run out. So we were hungry. We were dehydrated. We were disorientated. The heat was unbearable. The center, that Eastern Washington heat. So it just beat down on us. We were uh, just really approaching kind of physically rough shape we could we could have used we, the the elements and the exposure to the elements were starting to get to us i think and this is this is why we quit like there yeah. was a potentially <laughs> i say quit basically we went back to right. we ended up going to, to, to give away the ending here we didn't go to seattle we ended up going back right. to vancouver washington the same way we came basically mm -hmm. um so we never found a seattle train there was a Montana train, but we just didn't have the balls to take right. the Montana train. So basically, we decided after after 10 or 12 hours and talking to the cool rail yard bull, mm -hmm. let's just go back. Let's go back. And so, um, and so, that was sort of a relief because mm -hmm. we, were, we, were, we didn't have much money. We didn't have right. much food. Right. No trains were going where we wanted to go. Right. So it's like, fuck it, let's go back where we started. Yeah, you know, the magic sometimes runs its course. Yeah. But you know, the, the, if you want to talk about the hopper, this is where, for me, this is where the story really gets interesting because that ride back was absolutely harrowing. And this the is- The speed of that train racing through the canyon. At with, night. At night, we're standing there just hanging on these little ledges, looking down at the train tracks, rolling by. And there's a run, the, you know, going through this canyon of tunnels and there's rock, a, a granite face. You could basically just reach out and, and touch and flick with your finger. The, the train is so close to that. So absolutely, we should have just been pulverized. So there's, yeah, so the little balconies on the end of the, of the covered gondola cars, if you're lying down, it can fit two people. Mm -hmm. And I think one, there's several ways that these are dangerous. One is falling off the cars or having like a branch hit you. Again, they're, they're not designed for passengers. Right. And so there's all these dangers that are not taken into account. I mean, it's, it's why they have rail yard bulls, mm -hmm. is that basically there's a, there's a big percentage that you will get hurt or killed right. jumping trains. <clears throat> um, there's there's the, the flat car machinery shifts, but then there's also exposure. Right. And this is what happened is that um, Matthew and I had these nice Russian military sleeping bags. We were sleeping mm -hmm. on the end of one gondola. And of course, the gondolas are attached to each other. And so you, we could walk back and forth between two different cars, mm -hmm. and there's there's ladders and bars. It's right. it's 
it's all dangerous. Right. You were sleeping on the other one. Well, in a freaking plastic gunny sack. Listen, listen. This doesn't paint me. This doesn't paint me in a very nice light. I was freezing cold. I was cold. It was hot during the day, cold at night. And you guys had nice bags, and I saw this kind of, you know, plastic grain sack. So I wrapped myself up in that, shivering, thinking, well, all I got to do is hang on, just make it through the night. And we decide that to sort of keep our heat together, all three of us are going to lay together. Well, basically, I asked you a question, <laughs> and you were so cold you couldn't answer. You yeah. literally couldn't answer. Yeah. That's how cold you were. That's... That's how close to hypothermic right. you were. Right. Is that Matthew was just sort of being strange. Mm -hmm. Matthew was sort of a nice guy. He was probably mm -hmm. concerned about you too. So I was asking, I was trying to carry on a conversation mm -hmm. and I realized after a few beats <laughs> that you, you could not respond. Uh -huh. that, that when you tried to respond, you were talking like a madman. And right. so we decided that you were gonna come over with us. Mm -hmm. Two of us back, <laughs> on our backs, two of us could sleep on the end of a gondola Three of us. I'll, we had to get on our I'll, sides. I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you one. Sandwich. I'll give you one guess who who had to ride in the middle of that. And you know, Ralph, we joked about this many, many, many times. But I'll go ahead and I'll be honest about it. Right? As we said before about Matthew, Matthew didn't have a whole lot of experience when it came to um, you know having sex in a boxcar. Let's just say. So as I was laying in the middle, spooning you, and Matthew was cupped up behind me, and there in the middle of the night. As the train is rolling home, I got to know Matthew very well, and Matthew, Matthew got very excited, and See, and you know I was so cold. Let me just tell you, this was also my first. You should probably clarify because people are probably wondering if this is a Me Too moment. No, no, uh, we were so cold, and we were just all huddled together. Well, and, actually, uh, let's go back and just talk about this. So basically, you were in a plastic gunny sack. You were hypothermic, basically. So we brought you onto the car. The train was going like 50 miles an hour in the middle of the night. Right. Matthew and I had sleeping bags, and so we decided to make a Brian sandwich. <laughs> and and we couldn't lie side by side. We had to get. We had to. We couldn't lie on our backs. The the the, the little balcony was Wasn't so short room. that we had to sort of sandwich together. We had right. to make little bacon slices. We all spooned. We spooned. We together. spooned. And, and so Matthew, I don't know if we unzipped the sleeping. Did we unzip the oh, sleeping bag? Let's just keep the word unzip out of, out of this equation. <laughs> and so and so, I'll I'll let you properly tell your story now. But I was like I was up against the gondola. You were behind me. You're sort of spooning me from behind, trying to keep warm. And Matthew was spooning you from oh, behind. All up and in my we, business. <laughs> we had sleeping bags. We were trying to keep you warm, yeah. but you were also helpless. Well, you know, you saved my life, and uh, I'm eternally grateful. But yes, I got to know Matthew very, very well. And <laughs> as it was happening, I just had to, I just had to say, just, just let it go, just let it go. So basically, Matthew got an erection. <laughs> Matthew got, got an erection. Voluntary erection. Yeah. Well, we were all to we, we, we were all stuck up together. Matthew, Matthew got hard, and uh, and was rubbing it up against me. <laughs> what? And well, you know, we're we're okay. packed so close. Right, the train's right. moving up and down, and I just there was nothing I could do. I was so cold. I, I just had to let it happen. Well, let me just say, I've, I've been hearing this for years. Yes. And there's no way of fact-checking it because my, I was facing away. I didn't know it was happening. Mm -hmm. So I'll just take your word for it. That there's no way that a guy is going to lie about this story. This is, <laughs> this is as true as true can be. And when it first happened, my first thought was, whoa. What? It, no. No. 
Are you? No, that's not what it, oh, that's what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. And I was shivering, I was so cold. Yeah, there's nothing I could do. There's nothing I could do. I just had to let it happen. Oh my God. But, so, we, but, but we made it through the night. Did you sleep? No, not I don't at think all. I slept. Not at all, not at all. I, no. I, I wasn't hypothermic. I was warm, but I, I did not sleep. Yeah. And this is really when I got miserable because we got arrested. We sat in a rail yard for 12 hours and then we were really freaking cold going and, back and to And very Boston. thirsty. We were all dehydrated. Right. And then... And then the train stops. So we get back to Goldendale, around where Pasco is, sort of well, the, the halfway it's, point. It's actually called Wishram. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked this up because it, actually Wishram is burning in my head because Wishram could be the low point for me. It, actually, it wasn't the low point. The low point was probably the 12-hour rate mm-hmm. in Spokane. Right. Wishram was part of a hobo jungle, though. There was a shit ton of hobos in Wishram. Right. And well, that's we, where they started we, to approach us. Yeah. Because the train stops. And we were there for eight hours. Right. Another eight hour just so the next sit morning, and wait. You survived. Actually, you and Matthew went and jumped in the river. You went swimming. I was well, at this point, I think we were engaged in, in Matthew's <laughs> mind. Something had passed between us. I was reading Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. It's, it's, it's a strange choice of literature. <laughs> You know, and it's this civil Yeah, but thank God, book. thank God the Columbia was there. So we, we stopped along this river, we walked down, and we just jumped in and swam in the river, drank. That was actually pretty cool. Yeah, and that was a great moment. As far as romantic, the Columbia Gorges, for whatever reason, I didn't want to swim. And so actually I did something, maybe one of the reasons I don't like Wishram very much, you guys were swimming. Mm-hmm. I was walking on top of the uh, covered hoppers. Basically, the top of the covered hoppers, there's a little walkway on top of these cars that are full of grain right. and stuff. And I could just walk the length of the train on top of the stopped train mm-hmm. and look around. And I looked down and I realized that there were hobos. There were bums h- hanging around mm-hmm. in the bushes everywhere. And so I was used to, I was a little leery about the bulls, even though one of them was nice. I was used to talking to the brakemen. Mm-hmm. So I started talking to the hobos. And so I was, I was talking to a couple of hobos. <clears throat> And there were some rough, and like all the hobos we met in Wishram were rough right. people. And by rough, I mean just not very healthy, right. you know. Filthy, um, dirty, disheveled, Maybe dirty some clothes. of them were criminals, but just these yeah. were broken men. Right. And so I was talking to some guys, and a lot of these guys have criminal records. A lot of them are wanted. Right. They're hiding out. Um, and so I started talking to these guys, and I'm like, I was just asking about train stuff, you know, in, in, in a sense, in my own college boy one right. way. I, Mr. I, Affable. I considered I was one of them. So right. I'm like, hey guys, you know, <laughs> we're jumping trains, you know. This. So I'm asking questions. And so I'm standing on top of the train, right? Mm-hmm. These guys are sort of hiding in the bushes. Right. And I'm sure there's plenty of bulls in Wishram because there's a shit ton of hobos. Right. And so I asked, like, I asked the 12th question and this guy is like, I motherfucking tell you what. You better get off that motherfucking train. So they, they basically right. start threatening me. The funny thing is, is that between you and me and Matthew, we're all healthy young right. guys. Right. And I don't know, I wouldn't want to fight any hobo because these are rough guys. Right. But they weren't like big, strong. They were unhealthy guys. Right. But basically, I was suddenly spooked. Mm-hmm. And so I, I suddenly obeyed them. Mm-hmm. And when they realized that I was following their orders, they got even more aggressive so it was this weird moment. You and Matthew were off right. swimming in the river, enjoying your engagement. Right. <laughs> Whereas I was basically, it went. If if they yelled at me, I yelled back and told them to fuck themselves, and that uh-huh. I don't give a shit about the bulls. Right. I feel like they would have respected me more than mm-hmm. me saying, "Oh, I'm sorry." Oh, and then I started climbing right. down a ladder, 
And then they got super aggressive. Basically, that it's this weird law of the jungle thing that basically mm-hmm. I had been deferential. They took that as a sign of deference when really it was just, I, w- I felt bad because I thought I was endangering them mm-hmm. and myself. And so, yeah, it, it got weird. So they started, and so basically I just, I, I ran back. I think I ran to the river and told you guys to come hang out with me because yeah. those guys had spooked me. Well, so we get out of the river yeah. and we go back. And we yeah. follow you up. And then one of them came over, if you remember, and he had like a like a 40 of old E. This is a different group because this is a this is an African-American guy. This is a black guy came up and, and started talking to us. And he had a warm as the sun can, right. a tall boy of old English, malt mm-hmm. liquor, and he set it on the train car. And we were told. Yeah. If that's, that's the sign. That's a sign. And if you take it and you drink, it means something. Do you remember yeah. what it means? Well, first, it could be drugged. So never, that's what we were told, never do that. And that wasn't one of the professor's rules. That was, I think, the, the, um, the bull. bull. Yeah, he told us that one in Spokane. But when he moved, he could just slid it towards us. I thought, oh boy, this is it. This is an after-school special movie. I know what to do. I know. <laughs> Run away. My memory of him is that comparatively he was affable because yeah. those other guys spooked me. And they were both they were bearded, runty guys. Yeah. The guys who were yelling at me, that basically I think that those guys were sort of at the bottom of the pecking order and they thought it was cool that, they, that this big, tall college boy right. was following their orders. Whereas the black guy just came in and he was chill and talking to us. Whereas I think he was the first hobo you guys had talked to. You mm-hmm. heard stories about the drink. There was no way any of us were touching that right. malt liquor. Right. Um, <clears throat> And so it was like almost like it was a hobo code. It's like he was offering it to us, but we didn't take it. And so right. that communicated something to him as yeah. well. And then this is in my journal. He was traveling with five of his friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all black too. It's interesting. And so I don't know if there's racial segregation or how, mm-hmm. maybe it's just they were friends and that mm-hmm. was that. But I didn't know it at the time. There must've been like 50 guys in that hobo jungle. Right. Right. Um, but those guys were pretty chill. They weren't that interested in us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were just sort of feeling us out. They didn't yell at us. Well, we were we were definitely an oddity. Yeah, like we really stuck out in their little you know kind of uh, wilderness area of, of hierarchy of who's who's up and who's down. We definitely were not supposed to be there. And so it's interesting how many factions there there can be in a place like right. that because these guys were just five guys traveling together trying to figure mm-hmm. out what it. I'm sure that people do favors or right. you know give you trade things. Um, so eventually they just left. We bored them and they left. Uh, my journal says that we were there for eight hours and at mm-hmm. some point in Wishram, okay, interesting aside about Wishram, I just thought it was the shittiest town in Washington. This is, if you only know places through the rail yards, oh, yeah. it's a horrible yeah. way to get to know a place. Like Spokane, we saw a very ugly part of Spokane. We saw a very ugly part of Vancouver. Wishram just seemed like hell warmed over. I looked at Wikipedia yeah. entry, <laughs> it's about 200, 300 people. Mm-hmm. Lewis and Clark wrote about right. it. 15,000 years ago, it was an Indian salmon trading village. Right. Um, Washington Irving went mm-hmm. there and wrote about it. So mm-hmm. Wishram in its Native American days was a special trading post. Right. But in the early 1900s, and again, this is an aside, in the early 1900s, they started building railroads through there mm-hmm. and Wishram became sort of a junction. Right. So that the, the, the line going through the Columbia Gorge connected with, with lines going north and south mm-hmm. at Wishram. And so, for whatever reason, the train moved 500 yards and stopped again. Like we thought we were getting out of Wishram mm-hmm. after five hours. It stopped again for three more hours. Right. And there were even more hobos. My spirit had sort of been broken by the 12 hour wait in mm-hmm. Spokane. 
This is an eight-hour wait, so that's twenty hours of sitting around in rail yards. Right. Between that's ten hours a day averages out. But I will I will say this. This is this has to be said. We were good company. <laughs> you know, we we would talk and we would hang out and use this time and we laughed and we were we were enjoying it as best as you could, even though it was a big inconvenience to be sort of uh, have the the trip stalled in the middle and not know when you were going to leave again and the uncertainty of it. We did enjoy our, our company. I think this is worth acknowledging that it is enjoyable and it's worth it um, and it's interesting, but it's not really fun, mm-hmm. you know, that if you're going to jump trains, you have to be prepared to be dirty and inconvenienced and bored and in danger a lot, but not not even in exciting danger and just sort of dull danger. Mm-hmm. You just have to be careful, mm-hmm. you know, about when trains are going to start or stop. And, right. And who's around you and are they sober, you know? And so there's a ton of hobos there. And, and I should have kept a more detailed journal because how exactly the 12 hours in Spokane or the eight hours in Wishram played out, I'm not sure. I do know that when finally the train, one, it was sort of spirit breaking when the train started moving and then mm-hmm. stopped 500 yards later and mm-hmm. waited for three more hours. This is after you guys had swam. Finally, it started moving again. And the reason we could tell that this it was really a leaving for real this time is that hobos just started, started running. coming out of nowhere. It was you, you. If you put this in a movie, people would say that's not very realistic. Shoot it with fewer hobos right. jumping out of the bushes. And basically, this this train lurched into motion, and like twenty hobos are just sprinting. For it the was train. like the opposite of living in a cheap apartment when you turn on the lights and all the roaches <laughs> run under the fridge. It was the opposite of they they all ran out from the shadows onto the train. And one of them got onto our covered hopper. Yeah. yeah. And he, I think he asked, are you the rainbow people? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what that was at the time, but the rainbow people are like, the, they're like a hippie group, uh-huh. right? Anyway, he was not sober and his hat fell off. Mm-hmm. And the poor guy jumped off. Jumped. And, yeah. and ended up still stuck in Wishram. Mm-hmm. Thank God for us. <laughs> we, we weren't, I mean, it was hard. If, if you were when that hat flew off his head, I had never been happier. I was like, bye bye. Bye bye. I mean, the things we were person. saying about the, the hobos are a little bit mean because we didn't really know the hobos, but they were a rough looking bunch. Right. And I didn't really want that guy on our grain car, in part because you'd already been traumatized by Matthew's right. boner the night before. <laughs> Well, I certainly wasn't taking no hobo boner. That's, there's no no chance that's and there happening. There was really no room for him. I mean, he 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 could have fit. Yeah. But like, like a random hobo is going to ride all the way back right. to Vancouver, Washington, with us. Right. And again, to my listeners, when I say Vancouver, Washington, it's basically Portland, Oregon. It's right. across the river from Portland, right. Oregon. But there's something also when you're around people that are obviously have mental health issues. There's an uncertainty to them that you just have to constantly keep your eye on them. So this was this is this kind of element as well is that that guy could have pulled out a knife he yeah. could have jumped yeah. us at any time so there's no relaxing there's no letting your guard down you're constantly wa- keeping one eye on this guy in the boxcar with us and in retrospect the boxcar killer for all I know right. spent a lot of time in that he, he lost his hat on the train yeah <laughs> right um, he didn't kill civilians he killed mm-hmm. hobos. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a serial killer, but he didn't like walk into a neighborhood off the freight train to right. kill kids in the neighborhood. He killed other hobos. Mm-hmm. Other hobos, and I'm sure there's people living noble lives, but the romanticized hobo life is not realistic. There's a lot of crime and mental health, and people just at the low ebb of life, and just some really rough people. Mm-hmm. 
this guy probably would have been fine, but you never know. And so he eventually jumped off. And all I remember, it must have been a long ride because Wishram to Vancouver is not close. All I remember of this part of the ride is how fast we went. Yeah. Because the night before we were going fast, we were probably going up to 55. Mm -hmm. And when you were were getting hypothermia, this time we were going at least 70 because we were passing cars. Blisteringly fast. We... It was actually sort of a rush. Yeah. Well, it felt like a, but we were like a roller coaster, you know. And I remember this so vividly. Uh, we were just flying down the tracks, and the rocks were so close onto the side, and it was very exhilarating. And and we were on a covered hopper again, right. so we were on very these very the short ledge balconies. The, yeah. yeah. Um, then it got dark. We were going seventy miles an hour. It got dark. We were we were so happy. We were getting home right. fast. We were ready right. to be done. Right. Then. It slows down as it gets into the metro area. You can't go seven miles an hour right. through Greater Portland. But we realized, having spent a lot of time in the Vancouver Yard, is that if we waited until the train stopped and got off in the Vancouver Yard, we'd have to walk like 30 right. minutes or something. Right. So I forget exactly how this happened, but we were going through the suburbs of Greater Portland, of Vancouver, Washington. Right we, across the bridge from Portland to uh, Vancouver, Washington. And we saw the red line, and I could probably look it up on oh, Google Oh, it's still Maps. there? Yeah. And um, it's like, fuck it. Let's jump. Let's jump. And I don't know how fast it was going. It wasn't going 70, but it, maybe. No, it, it had slowed down, but. Maybe 10 or 20 miles an hour? Yeah. It wasn't, dang- I don't remember being super dangerous. We jumped off a freaking moving train. Right. right. And um, basically, and this, this, this is really a sign of the times we were in, that we knew that the red line in would have a phone. Right. Right. <laughs> If we had cell phones, we would have gone to the oh, trail yard. We would have yeah. called Marnie, and she could have picked us right. up in the trail yard. But right. in the in the in the rail yard, but because we basically risked our lives for a phone booth, <laughs> because it's like we knew we I would knew rather we rate, wait at the Red Lion Inn mm-hmm. than wait in the freaking Vancouver rail yard. Yeah, that was a really good call. So we jumped off. Oh, we must have smelled so bad and oh, and we so tumbled bad. too. That was a yeah. hard fall. Yeah, that was tumble and somersaults and laying out flat on the rocks. That was, that was not a graceful exit. I forget Matthew's reaction at the end. I think, again, Matthew was a little bit crazy, so he was sort of nonplussed. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Um, and he was as dirty and smelly and tired uh-huh. as the rest of us, but he just, yeah, there's just another day in his life, right. you know? Then we called <laughs> Probably our, do it again tomorrow. <laughs> called our friend Marnie. And she, and oh, think, God bless Marnie. And she picked us, I think she took us to pizza, and, and we were so, we were just babbling to her. Like we were just telling these right. stories. We were so just pumped we, up. We'd been arrested. We'd slept in the <laughs> desert. Like for that much to happen in a three-day period is is pretty rare. Yeah. But you know that's exactly how it's supposed to be. You know, you're supposed to have. That's we yeah. got what we wanted. You know, it might not have been as the perfect sort of envisioned trip, but we got our magical moment in our own way. And now it's all these years later. It's we're it's that, that's a, a sentimental uh, sort of nostalgia to it yeah yeah i don't think there's ever been an era of freight train hopping where it consists entirely of hanging out with your buddies playing a harmonica right. while the train gently rolls through the countryside right because freight trains are not made for passengers they've mm-hmm. all it's always been an illegal thing and in a lot of yards it's a federal law that we were basically right. breaking the law by jumping on these trains we were breaking the law of the train company because we were trespassing mm-hmm. right one lesson we definitely learned, and it was such a great trip. And in fact, for years afterwards, I would tell people, seasoned travelers, about jumping trains, mm-hmm. and they would stop and listen to the whole story because it's so rare. Yeah. It's, it's not a normal thing. 
but it's not comfortable. It's not always fun. Right. It's, it's a very dirty, noisy, and dangerous mm -hmm. way to travel. Mm -hmm. We've been wanting to have this conversation mm -hmm. for a while. We hung out in Oregon last year, and we talked about possibilities. And as we did some internet research, we realized that in all the ways travel has blown up since the internet, train hopping hasn't. I mean, it, it is documented, but it's mm -hmm. still sort of a gutter punk thing. Right. It's still sort of a criminal thing. It's still sort of a lowest of the low thing that basically the Instagrammers, the romantic right. people, right. they don't jump trains because it's not a romantic experience. It's hard, it's dirty, it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. People die. Um, and but you know, like if, if I had jumped, if we jumped on the train and instead of taking out a harmonica, I'd pulled out a cell phone and taken a selfie. Mm. Like you should have thrown me off the train <laughs> because I know it's as cliche as it sounds to play a harmonica on the train. It sounds kind of Bob Dylan-y and kind of ridiculous. It wasn't for me. I felt it. I felt great. This is what I'd always wanted to do. I was free. I was Huck Finn riding down the Mississippi with my feet dangling in the water. It was, it was real. It was visceral and exciting. And that was a nice thing about that era. I think that we as humans would have used a cell phone if we'd had them. Mm -hmm. But because as X generation people, we didn't have that option, we just absorbed that moment. Mm -hmm. And, and it, was, it was so nice. Mm -hmm. But the, interestingly, there's no, that I know of, there's not that much of a hobo Instagram <laughs> or Twitter. There, there is hobo YouTube, however. Mm -hmm. So there are people who are using their phones and shooting right. videos. Of the videos I've seen about train jumping, there's a couple different kinds. One is sort of, basically it's guys like us who are sort of showing off. Mm -hmm saying, oh, look at the romance right. of the road, and look what's right. happening, look at how hard it is, right. which is fine. But there's a YouTuber named Stobe the Hobo. Greetings, folks. Stobe the Hobo here on December 6th in Denver. And for this week's episode, we're trying to go east out of Denver to Kansas and then double back and get to El Paso, Texas. James Stobie. Who, of the YouTube videos I've seen made the best ones because he's not trying to over-romanticize things. He's very knowledgeable. He gives a lot of information. Um, he's very unromantic about things. He actually goes through Salina, Kansas, which is the closest town to where I have a house in Kansas and sort of hates it. So his name was James Stobie, Stobe the Hobo, made a great series of YouTube videos. Can you guess what happened to him? I would imagine he got... Uh run over by a train. He was killed. He was killed on a train in 2017. So this, not to put too neat of a bow on this or to be too metaphorical about that, but basically the biggest social media star in my perception of the train jumping world mm -hmm. was killed jumping trains. Mm -hmm. And he probably did some unwise things. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of fans. He had like 10,000 followers mm -hmm. on YouTube. And there's, there's other train jumpers who have YouTube followings. Mm -hmm. But to my mind, the most honest and interesting train jumper died five years into his right. YouTube journeys. And that sort of underscores how dangerous and unromantic this can mm -hmm. be. That there is a romance to train jumping, and it is tied into different generations of Americans. Right. But it's well the not romance for the romance doesn't always end up in the right way. You know, McCandless dies all by himself out on a a bus in the wilderness. You know, Cassidy dies on a on the, on the tracks. So maybe we were just lucky. 
what is its legacy in your life? How do you remember it? How did it become a part of you? That's a really good question. I think one, uh, it solidified all of the books that I had read that were about the adventure and the call to adventure and that these things can absolutely be real. That's something that I think is very important. Like if those, if those like when I tell my students now that I jump trains, they freak out. It is close the book time and it is Mr. Hartenstein, tell us this story. We want to know. Even my own kids, I've, I sort of told them, yeah, you know, I'm going to go meet with Rolf. We're going to talk about trains, jumping trains. They're like, what? Dad, what? I said, well, I've been holding off on this, this one story. I think one, two, one thing about these adventures too is that it sort of, it sort of provides a bridge of sorts between a childhood understanding of the world and an adult understanding mm -hmm. of the world. Because when you're young and you're dreaming of jumping trains, it's all about the, the choo-choo smoke and <laughs> the beautiful scenes. And then you're doing it mm -hmm. and it's amazing, but it's also dirty, dangerous, and right. boring. It's hard work. And so I think the romance, I think when we were chasing trains as college students through Newburgh, Oregon, um, and dreaming of trains, we were dreaming of a version of that adventure that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And in a way, we made our dream come true, but it also chastened us. Mm -hmm. It realized that we probably don't need to be jumping trains every day. Right. That we did it once, and we had plenty of adventures beyond that. But... Um, we learned our lesson and we're happy to have had them. Well, yeah, it's like, it's like having sex in a boxcar. You know, it is a beautiful moment. It sounds, maybe it sounds to someone listening to this, they think, well, that, I would never do that. <laughs> would you never do that? <laughs> or is that exactly the thing that you should do once in life? So, yeah, the expectations, the reality doesn't really meet the expectations, but, but I'm glad I had the expectations and followed through on them. I think there's even a metaphorical, metaphorical aspect to this too, because it didn't occur to me until you talked about having sex in a boxcar. Seeking to have sex in a boxcar is less interesting than not having a place to have sex and getting creative, <laughs> which is what happened with me. Right. It was a college dorm. I had roommates. Mm -hmm. um, it was a religious college. I could have gotten in trouble. So the boxcar presented itself. Mm -hmm. and, and that sort of fit into this mythos with mm -hmm. other things. Maybe train jumping for all the listeners... And actually, I, I wouldn't necessarily, it's, it's super dangerous. I don't know if I, I could in good faith recommend it to listeners. Um, if, if listeners are going to do it, who am I to stop them? But I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. But metaphorically, there's a train hop. There's yeah. something that, you know, that maybe a listener or someone has dreamt about and doesn't think they can do it or doesn't think they should do it. Well, maybe you should do it. And, and you'll learn those lessons that... It's not as romantic as you thought it was, but it's totally worth trying to do it. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. It doesn't have to be the dangerous train jumping or sex in a boxcar, but it is something that you are thinking of doing or wanting to, wanting to do, and you're telling yourself you can't do it. You know, society is telling yourself that you shouldn't do it, but it's there for a reason. It's calling you. You gotta answer it. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. 
This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>